you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. I'm so excited because this month we have Dr. Kevin making his way back, and he's talking about a topic that brings a lot of doctors anxiety. And I'm really, really interested to hear what he has to say about this because, again, the best way to not be anxious about a specific presentation is to know what to do when it comes up. And uh, what Kevin will be talking about this time is a irritable infant. And we get those multiple times in a week and really need to know how to approach that topic. So, um, again, I'm really excited, Kevin. Yeah, so uh, I'm uh, really looking forward to this topic. Uh, it's something I've been kind of mulling over myself as I work through my own self-learning in pediatrics. And, you know, as part of my background, those of you who know me know that I work in a community emergency department. One of the things I love a lot about my department is that we uh, are in a relatively young area with a lot of young families. And I probably estimate about 20% of my patient population is pediatrics. And because we're very high volume and I work a lot, I see a lot, a lot of kids every year. You know, as those years go by, you start getting more and more comfortable. But every once in a while, there's that case, uh, like all things in medicine, that uh, caught you by surprise and lowers your threshold to investigate or refer or to take a closer look at things. But what I wanted to um, cover today is a general approach to the crying infant up to young age toddler, essentially, you know, how we as frontline uh, practitioners handle this situation and when to investigate and when to refer versus, you know, either observing in clinic or in the department or sending home. So as far as uh, epidemiology and numbers go, I'm not going to do that today. I'll just simply say that every child cries. Every infant cries. I have four of my own. They've all done a ton of crying. So crying is normal. And I mention that because that's an important thing to convey to parents. And that there's a widespread of what is normal crying. And just because somebody's, you know, brother-in-law has a kid that never cries and is always happy doesn't mean that your child is abnormal because it is crying more. With that being said, and I'm not going to go into too much depth on this, be very cautious of the infant that is too good or perfect and never cries, never whimpers, never fusses. Uh, you could be looking at something serious. And my wife is a pediatric neurologist, has many referrals that come with, that start out as a child that's simply too good, too settled, not causing trouble uh, or grief for mom and dad. That is a different type of medical emergency. But at any rate, to go back to things, let's say you have a patient walks in with a four-month-old infant that they say is just crying non-stop. And I think that that's a pretty nice, generic, accessible example for many of us on the front line. Four-month, six-month-old, they're just crying. They weren't doing this before. They've been crying all day. And, you know, where I would sort of put the outer limits on the crying infant is when they get to an age where they can adequately verbalize um, and that may be quite individual for each child, but when they can point to their ear and say it hurts or their mouth and say it hurts, you know, we're kind of moving outside into outside of the range of what I call the crying infant, because the problem with the crying infant is that you have this little patient in front of you that could be crying because of something benign, 
something serious. And other than the parents' observations, which, you know, like I said, being a parent myself, um, can be subjective, really don't have a lot to go on. So you have to rely on a systematic approach. You have to rely on a very broad differential diagnosis, and you have to rely on a very thorough physical examination to essentially rule out something serious. And that is your goal. So when a couple, um, young mother, young father, bring in their child and the child is crying, crying, crying and say, I can't get them to settle down. Or your nurse brings to your attention this patient that is, quote, an irritable infant. Your goal is to rapidly assess your patient to determine whether or not there's something serious. And you don't have to get to the exact diagnosis, but you have to be able to say either something's wrong and I need to take this further, i.e. investigations or referral, or it is a crying infant, but I've been able to, you know, within reason, exclude something serious. Um, that's broadly where you want to be. And how you're going to do that is with a very thorough history, a very thorough physical examination. And as we talk about later, investigations are not going to necessarily play a major role. So key history starts before you even get to the crying infant in a review of systems, it really starts with when did they start crying, right? And, you know, has it been a week of poor sleeping at night and crying? Or has it been, you know, six hours of non-stop screaming, doesn't stop to feed, doesn't stop to soothe, nothing, right? And so getting a sense of how long that, that crying or even that irritability has been going on for, how long have they been upset or not themselves and try to use other words to get a grasp of, as to what what the parents are, are talking about and then you know during that time period have there been interruptions and if so what did they interrupt for i'd be very worried if they passed out or became unconscious versus oh well you know i put on the you know cartoons uh the big one paw patrol these days or something and yeah, they, they just stop, but then they start to cry again, or I'm able to distract them with, you know, a little game we play or the breast or the bottle, you know, are they soothing? Are they responding? Those are key questions to determine, okay, well, you know, is this just, you know, what I call a normally fussy or appropriately fussy child, or is this truly stepping into that irritable infant, you know, that you can actually use that term on. It's also important to understand whether or not it's the parent's first rodeo or not. So I take this pre presenting complaint very serious regardless of who's bringing it in. But I, I worry extra when I have a mother or father who says, yeah, this is our, you know, fifth or sixth kid or third kid. We've been here before. We never bring them in. But there's something that's worrying us about our infant. And that can be any number of presentations. But you know, I think to a certain degree, and this is our job in family medicine and primary care, is, you know, to reassure normal processes, right? So if it's just a young couple, it's their first child, they don't have a lot of, you know, support from family or friends, and, you know, maybe they are worried and, and it's legitimate, but it's your role to assess very closely what is that crying, and then, you know, perhaps all you're going to end up doing after you do a thorough history and a thorough physical is simply reassure them. The other key component to this history is what is the parent's response? Like 
like pay very close attention, not only to what they're saying, but how they're saying it, right? Did the child get neglected and left to cry all day by, you know, somebody who's not routinely the caregiver? And now the parents pick them up and, you know, notice the child's off and are bringing the infant in to be assessed. Are the parents indifferent? Are they frustrated? Are they overly angry about the situation? Especially when, with regards to postpartum depression, does mom appear to be disconnected or disassociated, you know, from the situation? So you want to, again, think about, and, you know, we always hate to, you know, include this in the differential, but it's key is, you know, forms of a, abuse or neglect, or is this a manifestation of postpartum depression, right? So is the child just a normally fussy child, maybe a bit colicky, but you're seeing, you're seeing this child being, being brought in, you know, week in or week out to your clinic or recurrently to the emergency department, but what you really actually need to be doing is sitting down with mom and saying, do you think you could be depressed? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Right? So this is again where, you know, I'm so excited about that family medicine background that we have because we have those tools and those relationships with our patients to go further and just go, Oh yeah, you know, you might be depressed. It sounds like you need to see your family doctor. Right. And even, you know, in my role as an emergency physician, I try to take my time with my patients, really sit down and find out what are what are the parents going through? Are there financial stresses? Are there job stresses? You know, uh, is there a lack of uh, formal or informal supports? Um, and maybe we need to be involving social work or mental health to help them get through this. And that really, it's just a normal fussy child. Uh, the other thing you want to get on history is whether or not they've attempted to medicate. And again, I try to go very, you know, open-ended, very gentle questioning um, and find out if they've been using you know, old school kind of like, I don't know, whiskey or, you know, whatever is done, alcohol or, you know, maybe some of mom or dad's medications or somebody else's things. That's a, that's a major, major issue and often one that we miss. And then as far as getting into the specifics go, your goal, like we said earlier, is to look for something serious. Okay. Or exclude something serious. Not to find something benign and hang your diagnostic hat on that. So as far as like a review systems go, and I'm not going to go into it exhaustively, big sort of determinant point is have they been sick, like febrile or not febrile? Because that's going to tell you a lot as to whether or not you should be investigating uh, your patient. You want to gently, along the lines of medication, gently ask about trauma, Right. So you don't want to go, have you dropped this baby, right? Or just say, oh, you know, were there any falls or injuries, right? Because again, you need to be very, very cautious. People will clam up if they get that sense that you're trying to interrogate or go down that route. And I'm not going to go into all of that um, discussion as to exactly how to take that history and, and do that exam. But you, you again, just want to leave it kind of open-ended and, and, you know, maybe the individual who perpetrated that is going to say, oh, yeah, classic, oh, my four-month-old rolled off the couch and, you know, or two-month-old rolled off the couch and you're going, well, that really doesn't happen. Um, so the other important thing you want to ask about it in terms of the crying is also what else are they doing besides crying? Did they stop smiling? Did they stop cooing? What about feeds? What about voiding? What about stooling? And that's primarily 
the activity of an infant, right? After six weeks is smiling, feeding, voiding, and stooling. And you want to find out exactly what they're doing in each of those uh, domains. And then as far as, um, you know, review systems, I just kind of go, like I said, head to toe, you know, any abnormal behavior, uh, lethargy, anything to suggest the seizure, pulling at the ears, pulling at the mouth, drooling excessively for a head and neck, cardiovascular system, you'd be looking for big ones like, you know, feed intolerance, um, sweating with feeds for CHF, cyanosis, respiratory distress, cough, increased work of breathing, all these sorts of things. Um, abdominal complaints, primarily going to be vomiting, what appears to be abdominal pain, but again, you have to be very, very careful because everybody wants to focus on the abdomen. Every child seems to be in pain when they have a bowel movement. Every child seems to scrunch up their legs and be in pain from their abdomen, but we know that that's not the case. And again, also following the stool pattern to ensure you're not missing any, you know, absence of stool or steatoria or um, diarrhea or GI bleed. Skin, you want to, you know, ask about any rashes, bruising, anything to suggest an underlying, you know, septic or hematologic process or, or bruising. So that wraps up the history and maybe I'll just quickly recap, but basically you want to know what, what do they mean by my child won't stop crying or my child is so fussy. You want to get a sense of the parents and their interactions, their attempts to remedy the situation, including medications. And then you want to go down your line of questioning head to toe and don't forget to include trauma. Okay. And who the patient has been with. As far as physical examination, and Dimitri, have I lost you yet? No, no, dude. No, you haven't. Keep on going? All right. Yeah, keep keep on going. And, you know, you took some of the words out of my mouth, especially that I tend to, and and again, this is not to to put a judgment on new parents. We're all new parents. But if a parent coming in that has three or four children is worried about a child, I do, it's a bit of a red flag for me. That's its own separate red flag. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, that is its own separate red flag. And so, yeah, moving on to the physical examination, I'll say it here and I'll say it again. It is a head-to-toe examination. You start at the top, you work your way down, and you actually examine the toes. You also need to do a brief neurological examination, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later as far as the differential diagnosis goes. And you are looking for hair tourniquets and testicular torsion. And another key, key feature of examination of the crying infant is just because you found the acute otitis media does not mean you stop your evaluation. Because that's what we all want, right? It's a busy clinic day. It's a busy day on shift in the eMERGE. You have this crying family. You want to, you know, this crying infant. You have these anxious parents and you just want to reassure them. Oh, it's otitis media. Here's your script for Moxel. Off you go. No, it does not work that way. I, you know, shouldn't work that way for anything, uh, but it definitely doesn't work that way for an irritable child. An irritable child, that's a form of medical emergency or urgency. It's not going to stop at otitis media unless you've excluded everything else. So moving on to the physical examination and for specifics, you want your your, your general impression or gestalt. You want to look at the child and see whether or not they're interacting with the parents, moving all limbs, 
feeding or attempting to feed? And if they are feeding, is it vigorous? You want to see how the parents are interacting with the baby. Are they trying to soothe or is they just, is somebody just, you know, staring at the crying infant in a stroller with no attempts to soothe or comfort, right? And you want to see when the parents pick the baby up, what is that response? Is the baby, you know, soothing or calming down? Is the baby just as irritable? These are all very important clues before you even lay hands on or a stethoscope on and, and examine the patient in more depth. I'm not going to go into all the elements of a neurological examination, but you're looking for the big ones. Raised intracranial pressure. Is there bleeding in the head from shaken baby syndrome? Is there a mass? Is there hydrocephalus? You're looking for bulging fontanelles. You're looking for lethargy. You're looking for any focality on examination. Papilledema, retinal hemorrhages. Bless you if you can look in the back of those little eyes. You're looking for weak tone, unable to hold the head. Neck stiffness, I'm going to specifically mention it, does not count in infants. Okay, if you are dealing with neck stiffness in a, in a CNS infection, you've already missed the meningitis. Right, so that is a very, very late sign in young infants. Yet we, we all need to do better than that. And so what I'm getting at is documenting the presence or absence of that probably doesn't have that much utility. It's more important that you document your general impression. And that includes, you know, uh, informing yourself with an entire review of systems, an entire head-to-toe examination. Head and neck, the big ones, acute otitis media, thrush, strep throat, a big one in kids, herpes stomatitis. First episode of herpes simplex, not just cold sores, but cold sores from hell. They go all the way to the back of the throat. I remember having uh, an eight-month-old with with bad um, oral herpes, and uh, and the parents were so relieved. Uh, it was two mums. They were so relieved when we when we found out what was going on because they'd already brought the child to a provider earlier that day, and I said, "Yeah, this is just, this is just really really bad." Um, stomatitis and we started some acyclovir and you know they were reassured with that another classic is corneal abrasion and this is another i put this in the same box as otitis media there was a great study and i'm not going to go through all of it but somebody actually just stained eyes of children coming to a pediatric pediatrician's office and found that all sorts of infants scratch their eyes with those little sharp fingernails that they have and they all give themselves corneal abrasions but that shouldn't be the source of your screaming crying infant unless you've excluded everything else. And even then, I would say that eye should not only stain with fluorescein, but it should be watery, it should be injected, it should look like a corneal abrasion in an adult before I would you know, go ahead and say, oh, that's the reason they're so fussy and upset. Cardiovascular system, I'd probably say you need to document a full set of vitals. Maybe blood pressure being accepted because that's quite, quite, quite difficult uh, in some circumstances, but definitely heart rate, respirate, SATs, you know, on a temperature. And you're also going to be looking at signs of breathing, adventitious lung sounds, any murmurs, any cyanosis, any difficulties with feeding, um, just, just an underlying uh, congenital heart disease. Moving on to the abdomen. And again, this is by no means comprehensive. This is not, you know, Med School 101, where we go through the physical examination. I'm just trying to hit the highlights here that all of us need to be thinking about. So in the abdomen of a child, you're looking for hernias, signs of appendicitis, intussusception, 
volvulus or malrotation, severe constipation, or a source of dehydration like pyloric stenosis or tons of diarrhea, in which case you're going to have a concurrent dehydration-like picture, which again, I'm not going to go through all the, uh, you know, components of, of dehydration examination here on this uh, specific episode. And then in female infants, remember that you can be dealing with ovarian torsion. And that's going to be where you have that totally unsettled female infant and you're just not able to find any other cause and they're really not settling. At that point, you need to be thinking about, could this be torsion? Because again, small infant is not going to point to their left or right pelvis and say it hurts right there, right? It's much more straightforward in... Um, you know, older children and adults, but it's going to be very, very difficult. And that's where that's a very, very uncomfortable child that at some point you're going to have to, if you cannot find another source, be looking at phoning a pediatric emergency department to get an urgent ultrasound or, or assessment. Moving on to the genitals. This is a site of abuse as horrifying as that is to, to mention. You need to look closely for any signs of trauma. Big one in little boys, uh, infant boys is going to be testicular torsion. So proper examination of the, uh, the testicles, documenting a cream master examination and then hair tourniquets. So remember hair tourniquets occur not only on the fingers and toes, they will also occur on the penis or around the clitoris. And that requires a very, very close exam. And parents may be wondering why you're looking there so, so closely when it appears kind of grossly normal. You know, normally you just kind of take off the diaper, have a quick look and close it all up. But in this case, I'm just telling parents, I'm looking very closely for a small hair that may be wrapped around the clitoris or around the penis. In the neighborhood is the anus. You're looking for signs of an anal fissure. Um, you know, if you have concerns about constipation on the abdominal examination, you may want to uh, gently using a lubricated glove finger, see if you can palpate hard stool in, in the rectum. And then moving on to the limbs and the skin, you're looking for any, the big ones are major signs of fracture, injury, or infection, cellulitis, vasculitis, um, some kind of inflammatory process or septic joint or uh, osteomyelitis. And again, the skin and fingers, hair tourniquets, bruises, burns, any signs of abuse, neglect, and or even just downright dirtiness, right? You know, dirty child, you know, that should be a bit of a tip off, you know, um, that there, you could be looking at some neglect issues. So that's the physical examination. So again, I'll, I'll repeat the key components. It, do a neural exam. Don't just stop at the otitis media and look very closely at something in the abdomen. And I'm going to add these to the summary here at the end, but those would be the key components of the physical is just head to toe. Don't stop even if you found a little something. There is no shotgun approach that is, that, that's going to get you where you need to go, right? So just a cursory exam, a cursory his, history, and then a whole panel of blood work or x-rays and a, and a course of antibiotics is really not going to get you where you need to be going. The, the key to not only diagnosing or excluding serious diagnoses is the history and physical but this is also going to guide your investigations and your history and physical are going to ultimately guide your disposition. Whether this child goes home, whether this child is observed in the ER, or whether this child is sent uh, for admission or further imaging. So your goal on the history and physical, if you are going to do investigations, is to find something to investigate. If you find a clear focus, 
go ahead and investigate. You know, yeah, I remember, I'll never forget, I had a um, three-year-old that went to an unlicensed day home and came back lethargic and covered in bruises. And by lethargic, that's what he looked like when I got him. I took him in for stat CT head, sedated him. We scanned his head and sure enough, he had a massive linear skull fracture. Thank goodness, no intracranial bleeding, but there was the source of his lethargy. I mean, effectively, he's a, you know, um, a concussion and um, that was quite concerning. If the child, and then as far as disposition, you're kind of going to go a few routes here. So enough going on and on about investigations. I mean, there's blood work, there's urine, there's a cult UTI, there's all sorts of things. But as far as disposition goes, the child is, in one scenario, the child's going to be stable with the unremarkable exam or a benign diagnosis like otitis media. The parents are going to be reassured. The child's able to soothe. They can go home. Okay, with close follow-up and with a lot of red flags. So I always, always am big on the red flags and warning signs and symptoms go over with parents. And I will share with them my differential diagnosis, right? Not necessarily in all of its detail, but just, you know, what we're concerned about, what you need to look for. And it's going to often reflect that review of systems. If the child fails to settle, so it may not be unreasonable in your clinic or in your eMERGE to simply observe the child, right? So... If you have any concerns, you can just send your child to my emergency department because every single irritable child that comes to my department, the first thing the parents walk in, the first thing the parents tell me when I walk in is they go, oh, they're not crying anymore. I feel so silly for being here. And the next thing that comes out of my mouth is, or the, the, the next thing that I say is, don't worry, we've all been there. And I've been there myself with a crying child. And so you, if you have the opportunity to observe the child, see if they can drink, see if they can feed, give some Advil, you give some Tylenol, you know, maybe you get a urine and, you, and you're waiting for, you know, some basic results to come back uh, and they settle down and the parents are feeling better, then you can look at sending them home. Okay. And that's another key component in the discharge criteria is if the parents are okay with it. Is I really am reluctant to send kids home. Uh, unless the parents feel 100% comfortable. And if they're not feeling 100% comfortable, then we either have a plan. They're either going to the children's emergency department the next day, or I'm seeing them again, or they're coming back to my eMERGE again uh, the next day to be reassessed. Okay. If, however, after a period of observation or something just isn't right, then the child needs to be going on to a higher level of care or you in, in the very least need to be having that discussion. So you're either going to be phoning your local emergency department or phoning an on-call pediatrician who has the, uh, the ability to assess the child, you know, in a pediatric hospital and you're going to be having a discussion as to whether or not uh, this child needs to be assessed uh, by a pediatrician or um, possibly admitted and observed. And then obviously, obviously, if you find something serious, you know, like the bulging fontanelles and a fever and lethargy, you know, you're worried about, you know, central nervous system infection. Well, then there you go. That child definitely needs to be going into hospital. Okay. But if you're going along those lines of the irritable child and its child, in your opinion, is truly irritable, they're not just fussy. They're truly, you know, inconsolable or minimally consolable. They shouldn't be going home. And there is nothing wrong with phoning 
a pediatrician or emergency physician to just say, you know what, uh, I don't know what to do here. Um, I need some guidance. Or I think somebody should be assessing this child. And you don't have to give them a giant differential diagnosis. You don't have to give them a whole bunch of pertinent findings uh, or positive findings. Your instinct, I mean, your, the parent's instinct to bring the child in and your instinct to say, hey, something's going on here is enough, in my opinion, to be sending that child on to a higher level of care. And if all of it comes out negative and there's a, you know, or something totally benign, well, fine. But, I mean, put it this way, the stakes are high. You know, you're, if you're looking at something, you know, intracranial or intra-abdominal, something surgical or meningitis-like or, you know, uh, you, you don't want to be missing that. And irritability may be that key early sign that you as the uh, frontline physician need to pick, pick up on. So let me summarize that. Number one, the crying irritable infant is a medical emergency or a medical urgency. Okay, it needs to be dealt with. You need to find out what's going on. Take the parental concerns very seriously. All right. It may be anxious parents, first timers. It may be something serious and life-threatening to the patient. It may be a form of neglect or abuse, or it may be a cry for help and that mom is struggling with postpartum depression or psychosis and that you need to be acting on that. But it is a medical emergency or urgency. Top of your differential diagnosis has to be an element of non-accidental injury. Whether it's an active process or a process of omission, is in the child is fussy and irritable because somebody has been mixing the formula absolutely incorrectly or feeding completely inadequately and this child is, is bawling their eyes out and screaming because they are so, so hungry and have not eaten in days. You need to consider abuse or neglect as a part of your history, your physical, and ultimately your, your potential diagnosis. All right, you don't necessarily have to get into all the nuts and bolts of it. Um, and by and large, if the child is that unwell, that they're crying, crying, crying like that, you're probably sending them on to a higher level of care and notifying Child Protective Services or a social worker as needed. Big ones, if I can go over the big ones, there is badness lurking in the head of an infant. And by that, I mean the intracranial areas. You're thinking hydrocephalus. You're thinking intracranial mass. You're thinking CNS infection. You're thinking non-accidental injury, shaken baby. Please, please, please pay close attention to those little heads and those little brains for signs of badness inside. Another big scary black box is the abdomen. They can't tell you where it hurts, right? Babies puke all the time, but if it happens to be bilious, that's a volvius, that's a medical emergency. So you need to know your abdominal examination in an infant and you need to know when to call for help so that you're not missing a torsion, a volvulus, or something else serious. Because those two places, the head and the abdomen, harbor a lot of bad things on the differential diagnosis and are particularly difficult to assess early on. And lastly, and I know I keep harping on it, please don't stop at acute otitis media, pat yourself on the back and send that child home. Please at least finish the history, finish the physical examination, reassure yourself and reassure the parents that, yeah, your screaming child is screaming because they got a big otitis media. 
not because of something else. So with that said, I am going to wrap it up because I've spent all day trying to build a giant play structure in the backyard for my kids and it's not going well. And now I am the irritable child in the household. Dimitri, do you have anything to add? <laughs> yes, we're all irritable. Uh, this was excellent. And uh, yes, uh, irritable child is similar to fever in a traveler, right? If a traveler comes in from Africa and they have fever and they happen to have a titus media, you don't stop there. <laughs> you, yeah. you go, you dig further. Yeah. And, and you're right. We're, we're human. We want to see that red tympanic yeah. membrane because it's easy, it's fast, but we have to go the extra mile. These yeah. kids can't talk. So we have to check everything head to toe. And what I usually do is if, if, you know, if I, if I'm worried and I can't find the reason, I, I do have them come back. I have yeah. the luxury of, of that, of yeah. follow up, which may not be as easy and emerge. But yeah, follow up is, yeah. is great. Have they come and back in 24 hours? Yeah. Um, I mean, my perspective on the diagnostic approach to medicine is, yeah, we have to be good on the subtle features of a clinical presentation because I don't need my grandmother, no offense to my grandmother, making the diagnosis. Oh, that guy's having a heart attack. He's clutching his heart, you know, and he's got abs abnormal vital signs and he's covered in sweat. Anyone can diagnose that. The medical student can diagnose that. No offense to medical students, right? <laughs> but I need to be able to subtly diagnose that chest pain, you know, that presents or that, you know, MI that presents as shoulder pain. You know, I had two um, WCB or WSIB workers' compensation cases that both went to the cath lab uh, in my wow. five years of practice. And they both came in saying, yeah, it's work-related. I'm having shoulder pain. Yikes. Yeah. Um, but this is the job, right? Like, this is what we get all this training for. This is why we listen to these kinds of podcasts. It's not for when it's obvious, right? When the neck's stiff and they're covered in a purple rash, it's obviously meningitis. It's when it's subtle and early. That's when we pick it up. That's when we make the great saves. And that's when we make a huge difference in our patients' lives and our communities. Um, and that's what excites me about the diagnostic approach to medicine. That's what I really love about it. So with that said, I'm going to, I'm going to stop my ranting and raving, um, and get rested for the next day of, uh, place structure building. <laughs> All right. Good luck with that, Kevin. Such a pleasure. Take care. Oh, always a pleasure. I love it. Thank you for having me on again, Dimitri. Yeah. Bye-bye.